Welcome, everybody, to the weekly American Reformer Space Spaces. Uh, we're getting these rolling again after a bit of a hiatus. Um, so thanks for joining us. Uh, follow us at, at AmReformer and uh, visit our website at AmericanReformer.org. We got with us tonight on this panel, Josh Abatoy, Executive Director of American Reformer. We also are joined by some of our friends and authors, William Wolf. Wolf the Lesser and Wolf the Greater, Stephen Wolf himself, Mr. Christian Nationalist. And uh, we figured this is jumping the gun a little bit, um, but we're calling this space Christian Nationalism one year on. We're coming up on the anniversary of when Stephen's book came out, probably around this time, the same year I was reading uh, some pre-publication drafts. Um, so it seemed a good time to start talking about it again. We've had a few articles at American Reformer lately continuing the, uh, the discussion on this topic. So I thought we'd do a, a debrief of sorts. Uh, this will be a broader discussion in the group or in the book uh, within this group, but uh, figured that's where we'd start. Um, so as I said, when did, when did the book actually come out, Stephen? Was, was it October or November of uh, 22? I think it was November 1st. November 1st. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. So one oh, coming up, I mean, again, we're a little early here, but coming up on a year of the book being out, um, first and most important question, and there's only one right answer, what was the best review of the book that was published? Uh, the best review, I think it was yours because it was positive. Yeah, no, that's uh, correct. And, yeah, that's and, correct, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe Mike uh say it was too but uh no in terms of like the negative ones i'd say like john john wilsey did a really good job i appreciate what he did there was that at london uh, lyceum yeah yeah so i mean it was critical and I, I don't agree with everything he said but he really did a good job at explaining himself and if, if anything if you don't know hegel that's a good kind of like primer just to read that review <laughs> you gotta get a good uh so uh, that, 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 that one was good. Uh, there was the one, I don't, I don't know him, but there was one from the Kirk center that came out recently. That was pretty good. And that, that kind of challenged like my use of nationalism, that it was more like a localism, which I think is actually a fair criticism and something to think about and respond to. Um, so I didn't, I didn't read that one, flesh that out a little bit more for us. It was, he was saying that your argument was more suited to localism or that localism is just a better, uh, aspiration. Yeah, as, as I recall, it was that, yeah, that my argument's actually more of a localist argument. So na nationalism, as it goes, can have this sort of homogenizing force to it, which historically can gotcha. be the case. Gotcha. And so the way I described people groups is really to speak of not necessarily a nation state or under a nationalism, but more a sort of localism. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, I think I, I'd still stick with nationalism just because I think it's at our time, more important to, to emphasize that than, um, but so I mean, we can get into that, but sure, sure. But it was good All right. We also have uh, Ben Crenshaw is now in the spaces. So that's our last, last piece of the puzzle here. And Ben just wrote a really good piece at American Reformer, uh, the podcast of which kind of surveying that piece or previewing it uh, went up at American Reformer today. So everyone be sure to listen to that uh, so we can get his, his thoughts in here as well. Um, so, Stephen, what's the, um, you know, again, we're coming up on, on a year. What's the thing that's most surprised you about the reception of the, the concept itself of Christian nationalism? 
Uh, boy, there's been a lot of surprises. The the concept itself, um, I, I guess I've, I've been kind of surprised how many people have reacted to things that were once just very common. I guess I shouldn't be surprised about that. But uh, I mean, positions that like, you know, you'll you say you venerate the reformers and 17th century theologians, you venerate this and that guy. And yet I'm saying the same thing. I mean, not, you know, I, I say some things differently, but, but most of what I, uh, what I present, oh, I got a big truck going by. Um, uh, most of, we can still hear you. You're good. Okay. Yeah. M- like most of what I present is just classic Protestantism uh, and people have lost their minds over that. Uh, and so that was a little surprising though again it probably shouldn't have been i think another thing just in terms of the reception just that it, it's it, it's still going on like the people are still talking about this people are still writing reviews of the book people are still asking what the what's the definition and debating what it is and what it isn't uh so i mean m- most books even like if they were bigger books they come out for they make a splash for a couple months um and then kind of are you know not forgotten but kind of go back and become footnotes and so um, so that I, that's been, that's been uh, kind of surprising to see, especially a book where I really tried to rig- rigorously as best as I could defend the idea, uh, instead of just throw out a bunch of rhetoric, I tried to actually, you know, do my best to provide, provide an actual case. Uh, so it yeah. can be dense at times and tedious. And so that, but anyway, the, the fact that it, it's been it's still being talked about is, is, um, I don't know, it's every author's dream, I guess, but. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, um, at least from what I've seen, you know, part of the reason it's still being talked about, uh, does, does connect to what you were saying about the re- the recovery aspect, right? You're trying to employ, uh, what we'd say is magisterial reformer, um, priors and explanations and even ways of, of reasoning about these, these things. And I think part of the reason there's a freak out over that, um, and also the book still being talked about is really, as I've argued elsewhere, you know, the, the Christian, forget about the, the label for, you know, a minute, even though it's, uh, that's provocative to people as well. And we can get into to why on that. But this is really an occasion for discussing, you know, higher level political principles as Protestants within the Reformed tradition. Very basic stuff, you know, hundreds of years ago, but now largely foreign to most people and and therefore um, uncomfortable or even offensive, right, to, to bring them back up because we're just not conditioned to accept them or think that way. Um, and I think all that's a good thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's occasioned the, um, not just the recovery of the tradition, but real kind of big, well, sometimes not so vigorous and not so honest engagement, but engagement nonetheless. Um, so I think, I think that's, that would be my explanation as to why it's still going. One, it, it offended people in all the right ways, but two, um, you know, it is, it is bringing back older ideas that are so foreign that people aren't quite sure how to grapple with them. Yeah. And I, I suspect we're, we're in a moment where people are, are looking for different ideas. Uh, and, and especially if you're with, with your, if you're committed Protestant, uh, you're, you're going to be receptive to kind of the older Protestant ideas, at least one would hope. And, so I think as we kind of shift and as, you know, as Ren would say, the negative world, I think people are looking for other solutions and ideas. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. I mean, the other thing too, is just the, like you mentioned the label itself. I mean, the, the left continues to use it, use the term. And so that they, it, you know, it, in, in, that, in that sense, they keep the conversation going. 
because then you have like the sort of people who hate the term who are on, you know, who are, who are Christians or, uh, I don't know, aligned with us in some way. And so they, they, they want to keep, keep up the attack as well. So there, there's all sorts of, uh, different dynamics at work here that keeps it going, which is, I mean, it's good for me. Uh, but I, I think it's also just good for the, the topic. I mean, people now have to deal with the fact that Calvin said this and Turton said that, and, you know, Bootser said this, uh, because that's, that can be constantly brought up and, and, uh, people have to address it. Well, I want to keep, we can keep talking about some of the, uh, particular ideas, but since we've sort of organically landed on reception here, let's get a, we got two Baptists, unfortunately on this panel and, um, you know, the Baptist reaction, um, I think in some ways can be, can be distinguished from other general reactions or even from maybe more reformed world. Uh, there's similarities, but there's also differences, and we're still kind of seeing a lot of the the Baptist reaction now with a lot of the G three comments. So let's get a let's get one of the two Baptists or both Baptists. It's a democratic process for them, so they have to have to vote on who goes first. Um, let's get some some Baptist thoughts in here. T- William, take it away. I think you just wrote something longer form on this, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I mean, not so much on the reactions. I mean, in in brief defense of. Baptist, I just have to say, I mean, there's been, there was no, uh, there's no shortcomings of, you know, bedwetters and hand ringers and misrepresenters all across the denominational spectrum that engaged Wolf's book or engaged Christian nationalism in general. I don't know. So, um, but Baptists, look, Baptists have their own um, unique, you know, historical uh, perspective on the nature of church state relationships. And um, so that uh, brings a certain flavor to the table. Uh, all this to say, I'd, I'd just say one of the things that I think is disappointing for modern Baptists, we've got this phrase in the Baptist faith and message of free church and a free state. Well, they think that free means neutral, like that that could ever be a possibility. They think free church and a free state means it's going to be a neutral state that has no sort of preferential, you know, opinions on you know, the quality of the speech that's happening in our country or the values and things like that, where I think Baptists need to really kind of wrestle through and reason through logically is that you can, you can, um, you know, you could have a free church, even in sort of a non neutral state, ideally a state that's not neutral in favor of Christianity and decent moral virtues and things like that. So, uh, that I'd say that's one of the biggest hangups for Baptists on this discussion. Yeah. So the, I mean, this was interesting to me, and, and this is not unique to Baptists. Obviously, I'm ribbing the Baptists. Is that you know the establishment question, which I'm you know a big fan of talking about and and write a lot about it and all that. It was interesting though that the the reaction to Stephen's book went immediately there, when that's certainly not. Um, where the book begins, or it's not as if that you could build a sufficient foundation for a fully orbed sort of political theory drawing on the reformers by beginning with the establishment question. So why, I mean, it's not just Baptists, it's, it's, it's lots of people. Why do you think the immediate kind of, um, you know, freak out does have to do with that, that question? They sort of jump there without dealing with anything else and then from, find some way to disqualify the rest of it. I, I mean, time and my theory on that is that um, a lot of the argumentation in Wolf's book, and for that matter, more broadly, classical political philosophy, as um, you know, which which then finds its way into the magisterial reformers, is just something that 
a lot of um, theologians don't learn about. And, you know, obviously for Presbyterians who want to avoid the issue or, or what have you, there are other conveniently quick ways to sidestep the argument. But, but for the Baptist, the quickest way to sidestep the argument is to say, you know, this entire project is inconsistent with our theology, with our confessions, full stop, and then the analysis there. Um, but, you know, I think that that's, uh, William's already made reference to this and done some work on it. I, you know, would love to see a lot more, but, you know, for, for the most part, I think a lot of this project is reconcilable with Baptist theology. And furthermore, um, well, I mean, the, I, I think even Stephen's framework itself, some of it, you know, reaches to not so much what must the state do, but what could the state do theoretically. And I would argue a, a number of Baptists thinking on the topic of what should the state do relative to the church is actually prudential rather than um, a matter of strict principle. So in that case, you know, it, it's, it's at least could be reconciled with Stephen's framework because in both cases, potential limits on the state action are limited by prudence. No, I yeah, think this is exactly... Oh, go ahead, Dwayne. Sorry. Yeah, just well, even even just more simply, like so. One of the things that Baptists do is they they and it's it's really bad. And you know, I'm gonna go ahead. I'll call some of those guys out, like those London Lyceum guys. They will they will just say like, oh, that's not Baptist. Like that's an argument. But what Josh is making good point about is that you know there are Baptist distinctives. Really, like there are some bedrock ecclesiological doctrinal beliefs that you know. If, if I were to say, oh, no, actually, I, I do think it's fine to baptize babies. Okay, that's not Baptist, right? Like, that would be a fine response if I said that. But if I, you know, hold to believers' baptism, if I believe in, you know, the autonomy of local churches, you know, pl- pl- plurality of elders has been practiced by Baptists, you know, all those sort of things, like, it, then and then I say, well, actually, you know what, I think there's some wiggle room over here to think about how, you know, political theology and nationalism, Christian nationalism, like there's no legitimate response that just begins and ends with that's not Baptist because it's a matter of prudence, not a matter of really a theological distinction. And this is what I tease out in this paper that I have. Hopefully, we'll finally get put up on a substack here where I say that, you know, our Baptist distinctives don't um, excuse us from having to wrestle with the pressing political issues of our day. Will we be nationalist and localist or will we be assumed by the WF globalist agenda? Will we, you know, return to the understanding of the fact that there's no such thing as, you know, a neutral secular state that classical liberalism has failed in many large ways and we need to wrestle with a path forward here? Or are we just going to sit on our hands and, and try to put our heads in the sand? So, yeah, that's, I think Baptists just need to wrestle with the realities on the ground and there's nothing about our tradition that exempts us from that. Well, I, I think so, like something else, I think also establishment captures the imagination of people in negative ways or it can, it can be used in that way. So I think more of the, the bad faith sort of argument would be, you know, just picture Bernie at the stake or, you know, cutting off ears or something like that. So it's easy to kind of capture the imagination. Um, and so you go, they, they go right after that, even though I think I make it pretty clear that there's different forms of establishment. There's like a sort of the soft establishment of, um, uh, you know, like the founding era and, and the decades afterwards. Um, but I, yeah, I think it captures imagination. I think especially for Baptists too, that they, they have, have a sort of, um, I don't know if it's like a persecution complex. That may not be fair, but there's a sense in which, uh, like press, like 
like, you know, Baptists can think of themselves as the sort of persecuted minority. And to talk about establishment as a way to kind of re- re- like uh, remind them of their their history as, as they conceive it. Um, I think there's also a sense that like Baptists think that they, they kind of won the argument in American political thought with regard to church-state relations. And so they think that the disestablishment of the 19th century was really a product of their argumentation. And I, I would, you know, challenge that. I actually, I do that in the book. I, I basically say that, no, it's just the outworking of Protestant experience, not really Baptist argumentation. Um, but anyway, so I think you put all that together and there's going to be this immediate kind of reaction, uh, negative reaction to establishment. Yeah, I think, I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's right. I mean, I've, I've, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, and I think picking up on something either Josh or William said here, um, and it's really going back to where Stephen uh, was introducing part of the book is, you know, the, I've seen this even over the past few days as sort of a, an accusation against, you know, Christian nationalists or people who are perceived to be in that general camp. And I think most of us are, um, even if, um, everyone's not, you know, totally embraced the label or could come up with alternatives, whatever. But the accusation is that we say something extreme and then you retreat. So it's a Mott and Bailey accusation. Then you retreat to, oh, no, 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 we're just talking about prudence. And I was, you know, asking people, why, why are these two things, why is that inconsistent or in bad faith? This is just how you do, um, do this kind of analysis and theorizing and what's really dumb to do is to begin with sort of the, con- I say this all the time, but to begin with the concessions and then develop a principle out of the concession, which is supposedly, you know, conditioned by context and historical contingency and things. And so I really don't understand, this is a very simple idea. Why is it so, why, why do people, it seems to be insist on ignorance and how this works or how it can work in that regard? Yeah, I mean, l- lately that's been a really fr- big frustration of mine. Uh, the, dis- the difference between principle, permissibility, and prudence. And and by prudence, I don't just mean I, I mean like experience and ways of life and the the, pat- the particularity of the people itself. So uh, I, I think what, one of the things that throws people off is they see the book title, the the cover, which I I love the you know the artwork and the, on the cover and all that, but it makes people think that the whole book is about the United States or American history. When in fact it's it's ten chapters to get it plus an intro and an epilogue, and really only one chapter talks about American American. It's mainly a, a, about the founding era and the century before, uh, and there's a little bit in the epilogue as well. But but for the most part, it's just laying out a broad, like general um, Christian political theory that is applicable in different contexts for different people. And a lot of what I say in there is something I think is permissible. And, uh, you know, in that sense, I'd be in line with the, the reformers and most of reformers up until maybe 18th, 19th century. I don't know. It's, uh, but, uh, but as I'd say most, um, but the, um, uh, but then I, but then I get to the American chapter and I was like, well, in our tradition, we have a principled development of religious liberty that uh, led to a sort of disestablishment. But I, I mean, I, I'm okay with like soft establishment if we were to recover that. But, um, but in, in our tradition, it was a broad Protestant, this, it, was a, it, it was considered a sort of Protestant, Anglo-Protestant achievement to extend um, religious liberty to dissenting sects or just to have a liberty where everyone can kind of contend 
under kind of a broad Protestant framework for their own system of theology. And so that's our tradition. And I'm not interested in overthrowing that. I mean, I'm, 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 uh, I'm very American. Let me put that. Um, you know, so very Christian, very American. And so, uh, but anyway, yeah, but it's been frustrating that people would have not understood that there is a difference between what's permissible and what's prudent. And if you're going to establish a general political theory, then it's perfectly fine to talk about what's in what's uh, permissible in principle and what may not be appropriate or suitable for a certain uh, particular people. Josh, William, any, any follow-up thoughts on that point before we move on? Yeah, I mean, I'd just say I, I share like Stephen's frustration. It seems that Christians have a hard time uh, thinking about theory Right and and thinking about you know, f- f- you know philosophy and like principles and that don't always have necessarily an immediate application. I saw someone saying recently that like you know uh, Bible study like application focused Bible study has like ruined Christian thinking or something like that. I'm not I'm not sure if that's true or not, but you know it's idea it's it's appropriate to just try to consider you know big picture principles and a theory of something without necessarily having to press it to some immediate application or conclusion or, you know, and so just, you know, I, Stephen's exactly right there that like, you know, we can, we can establish from a Christian perspective is something a matter of sin or righteousness, or is it a matter of prudence? And so if it's not necessarily a matter of sin of righteousness, if you do it, or if you don't do it, you're in sin or you're not, but it's a matter of prudence. And then it's a matter of particular prudence for a particular people at a particular time. And really once you, if you would read Stephen's book through that, I just don't know what the freak out would be yet. Many people did not manage to do that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's all right. And, um, you know, it, it does seem to me though, that even, even if they were to grasp this distinction, there are a lot of people that just are genuinely offended by the fact that you would even consider some of these things in the abstract or in principle, it's just an unacceptable, you know, bad idea. It's wrong. We've we've arrived. I mean, Stephen, you do like a tweet a week that's some version of what I'm getting ready to say, which is like it's just amazing um, in God's providence that um, exact biblical political theory was achieved in the post Earl Warren era. I mean, it's just amazing that we've arrived at this point. How lucky are we to be alive? Because really, what you get is the the freak out is is a you know, an assertion of a of a of an opponent, which is a general liberal presumption, po- post-war liberal presumptions um, about politics that can't be violated, right? They're sacred writ, and so that's really. But people don't seem to recognize this. These are uninterrogated assumptions, and so I think one of the big successes of of the book, in my opinion, is at least poking you know that bear, and and some people. Um, that are charitable enough and aware enough, um, I think it has probably moved them. And they've realized that they themselves harbored some of those assumptions that are, are really at odds with the tradition, not necessarily pers- supported by scripture, certainly not in any, in any uh, direct sort of fashion. Um, and, and you get this even, I mean, we were picking on Baptists earlier. I mean, I think this is predominant amongst Presbyterians too. I mean, I remember talking to people about some of these ideas a while back. And it's like the only two buckets that existed for them. Um, and this was like OPC world. So supposedly very theologically literate. The only two buckets available were like normal, which, which is really liberal or like theonomic, right? There's, those are the two options in the 
modern Presbyterian experience that you're allowed to, you're in one bucket or the other. Um, so I think this was paradigm shifting for people that were at least willing to dedicate attention to it. And I, I hope it continues to do that and further discuss the discussion. Um, I'm already seeing re requests for questions. Everybody, we, we will get to those. We will provide time for that um, here in just a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I if I could comment on that, yeah, like, yeah, so I do that. that. I do that trolling tweet where I say, like, yeah, yeah. it's the yeah we, we fi finally the politics the politics of jesus were discovered in the in the 1980s like reagan administration or right, something right, like that right. where it, that, you know that's kind of a joke but there is something true about that and true in the sense that people do kind of believe that right. um in the sense that if it, if it were like 1550 england like yeah it should be you know this is the reagan revolution <laughs> like that's what we need to bring about in the 1550s in england or france or whatever whereas like my I think just not even mine. I just think classical Protestant or just classical Christian thought is that well, I mean, this is just it's just this is just the most common position is that you can have different regimes in different places. It's suitable for the people, the characteristics of the people, and and all that. And so it's uh, really I think there there there's there's maximum kind of like flexibility and uh, within like within the framework of Christian politics. Uh, and so there can be different, you know, forms, different laws, different bodies of law. Uh, wh whereas like my, our, like our opponents seem more interested in having actually a very rigid, I'd say very historically conditioned set of mm -hmm. positions that they would then apply universally, not only in every time, but every place. So yes. like, you a different place in the yeah. world, which is in fact, Reagan, 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 Reagan. revolution time, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I, I think in, in some ways, at least from my own uh, like story or whatever, it's, I, I think it's the paleoconservatism that really helped me see that within the, the, the broader Christian tradition, that you can have different places, different peoples who have different forms of government and laws and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, ho hopefully I was able to lay out, though, there are, there are left and right limits um, yeah. what, and what a polity should have and seek after. And there are set ends um, purposes to um civil society and government but within those but uh to achieve those ends requires uh, uh different different means in different places and times yeah yeah time that was a really good point i, I just want to pick up on it for a second is that you watch sort of the engagement you get this from the left and the right but if you get it from more of the say like you know, uh, old school conservatism, like fusion conservatist arguments with this, they'll say like what Stevens proposing or Christian nationalism is that's not American. Right. And so, well, okay, well maybe, maybe it isn't particularly American or some of it isn't, but so that's not an argument against whether it's, it's good or not. Right. Like they're, they're acting as if like classical liberalism was handed down, you know, on at 1776 on Mount Sinai, you know, to the founding fathers and everybody at all time needs to be judged by that standard, which you realize actually is fundamentally uh, a very like non-diverse argument. It's way more sort of enforcing of a norm on everybody than what even is being proposed. But then for Christians in America, you need to ask, okay, well, maybe it's not necessarily American, but is it Christian, right? So like they're, they're conflating an, an accidental American historical like norm of our government as some sort of like 
Christian standard that all systems of government must be measured by. And I teased this out a little bit in my review for you guys at American Reformer, which I was just reviewing again. Like Paul Miller is a perfect example of someone who thinks like the the plumb line is classical liberalism, and he doesn't even feel a need to defend why that would be the case because for people like that, it just is. Yeah, I think, and I, I mean, I, I muttered this a second ago, but this is ironically, genuinely my, um, I think it's the central theonomic impulse, at least as theonomy was originally conceived. I know Stevens defended a version of that. I thought there was good interaction. But my, my point is that, of course, the, you know, the civil and judicial makeup of the of Old Testament Israel is readily transferable to any context without adjustment. In fact, it's the only just form that you can have. And it, what's funny is that the liberal opponents and just, you know, Paul Miller or whomever else, uh, there's going to be some differences there, but they generally are doing the same move with uh, a liberal society, right? They're saying this is nirvana. It's the only just regime. It's a- applicable to, you know, it's a sort of neocon thing in foreign policy. It's applicable to anyone. Um, it's the best way to live. It's the only way to live. So that's what's hilarious because they uh, probably, if you know, if they have any awareness as an evangelical, they do know what theonomy is and they know that it's bad, of course. Um, and that's something I see tossed around all the time at, at any kind of Christian nationalist arguments is this is just Christian reconstructionism, you know, 2.0. And we all know we've defeated that and it's bad. So it's a very funny move they make. But the, the other thing that's weird is, you know, especially out of Presbyterians is in the, and I, and I think that it's similar language in the 1689, is that, you know, you have early in the confession, the discussion about how there's things in the church uh, the government of the church that are common to all societies, which have to be governed by Christian prudence in the light of nature. And it just strikes me that clearly most Christians have no concept of uh, what those ideas entail or even how to use them if they're failing this poorly to engage um, at this level, which is which is exactly you know what Stephen's talking about. So it's, it's also concerning for um, ecclesiastical uh, organization as well, especially with people like Presbyterians who supposedly prize, you know, church government so much. Uh, Josh or Stephen, any any comments to take us from there, and we'll we'll start moving to to questions here in a little bit. We have a few racking up. Actually, I have a little bit of a I have a question for Stephen if he's willing to take Go. it. Um, so, so uh, time in, I think some of your comments and. and ju- revealed perhaps a juxtaposition of classical liberalism against Stephen's position. Perhaps I'm misstating you, but but I, I, I'd like to hear Stephen talk a little bit about the extent to which his project can accommodate a classical liberalism of sorts under certain social conditions. In other words, could it be the case that the American founding was a project that was entirely consistent with Stephen's project because at that time, we had the requisite civic virtue in our people to be fit for self-governance. And, you know, partly the maybe the radicalism of what Stephen says is, you know, we've lost that. We've lost those social conditions. And as such, it's to sort of to be expected that we're going to have regime level tension. And, um, you know, we ought to expect that changes could come. And, you know, that being the case, we need to be more uh, flexible about what the what the government looks like, but um, I, Stephen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on you know, reconciling liberalism with with your project, if that's possible. Yeah, th- I, this is it's a good question. Um, I, I, I'm always 
kind of unsure how to answer this because we throw out the word classical liberal and it's kind of like, what, what do we mean by it? Um, and, uh, but, but I would, I would say that, because I think when th- people think of classical liberal, they, th- I think they think of like a, a post-World War II sort of neoclassical liberalism, um, which is essentially secularist. And so that I, I obviously I don't think that's compatible. Um, but I mean, if you just look, look like the, uh, 18th, 19th century America, there, there was a sense, I, I, time and probably knows when the, the term liberalism was first used. I don't, but I don't think it was, it was actually used in the founding era. Actually, Ben probably knows that, but, um, but I, I, but I think you can characterize like 19th century America as kind as a liberal project, but it was still with a self-conception that the, the underlying conditions of liberalism was, uh, not only Christian, but Protestant. And that, that's one reason why when Roman Catholics immigrated in the 19th century, there was a deep concern among, uh, not just, you know, mainly elites actually, that there was a sort of, uh, Protestantization of those, those people because the, the great concern was, well, the conditions, uh, of, liberty of the religion of just liberty liberty in general in america was uh, one of those conditions was protestantism and they saw it as a achievement of essentially anglo-protestantism or protestantism in general and so in order to make in order to bring people into that um i sort of uh, self-understanding and, and understanding of liberal was of liberalism was to essentially protestantize them and I think, generally speaking, in the early, like at least in the first half of the 19th century, uh, the the elites were very successful in that in that sort of assimilation. Uh, so I, I guess to answer your question, I, I do think it is compatible. But I, I think if we have an older conception of what liberalism is, which is not secularist, um, it's deeply kind of a, a self understood religious uh, condition to it that is specifically Protestant. Um, I think that's entirely compatible, and and really that, to my mind, that is what I in would like to see, or the sort of vision for the United States is to say we are we are a Protestant country, and the the liberties that we en- enjoy are not products of some sort of post war order, but they're actually the products of a long development that go that predate the Reformation, but include the Reformation, include. Uh, Anglo-American or just American experience uh, that were then codified in, you know, First Amendment and and elsewhere. And once we lose those conditions, we get precisely what we're seeing today. So I think really that's why I would just say that the sort of chaos we see today is actually a product of the abandonment of the sort of conditions that we once held in confidence. So there was a time when Americans were confident in who they were and that included you know i keep saying it but those conditions so i one of one of the things yeah one of the things i want us to recover is that sense of confidence um, in public life and assert hey these liberties we enjoy actually are are a sort of inheritance we have from our not only our like ancestors going back um generations but also the development of our our own um, the, uh, of the faith itself, w- working itself out, um, over centuries. Yeah, I have, I have several, uh, thoughts on that, but I don't want to bore everybody. So, but I, and I want to get in Ben here. He'll be more interesting. So Ben, uh, you were name checked there by Stephen, And actually this kind of coincides with stuff you've written about recently. And we talked about on the podcast, um, in terms of the defining liberalism and, 
and thinking about its relationship to some of these ideas being thrown around. So what do you got for us? Yeah, I would just say um, in terms of the extent to which liberalism was present at the founding, it's, it's certainly there, but it's not the controlling element, nor is it the foundational element. So there was a reliance upon Locke, but not Hobbes, a rejection of Hobbes and a rejection of Machiavelli, um, but a more positive understanding of Locke and incorporation of his epistemology and at least political epistemology and his political philosophy. But that happened on top of, and Locke was interpreted by an English and Protestant history and experience. And so the right way to think about this is that uh, the Americans are not Lockean. Locke is American in the sense that most everything you find in Locke, you find previously articulated either by the English or by the colonial Americans. And so they read Locke as Protestants and as Englishmen, and they incorporated elements or interpreted elements of his thought, such as natural rights. They interpreted natural rights within a Protestant and English framework. And they thought that uh, English, the rights of Englishmen um, were merely the application of natural rights to the English experience. And then the Americans were going to do that in their own experience. Um, or, you know, like the end of government is property and property. Locke defines it as life, liberty, and estate, but they understood property as a gift from God. We were created by God and so forth. So it's not a um, secular concept per se. So it's liberalism is there, um, but it's not, the founding is not entirely classical liberal. I could go on, but kind of probably the best way to think about it in the short. Yeah, thanks for that, Ben. That was, that was great and a very good summary, I think, of the the contention to be made there. I'd also add just generally that, of course, there was, um, you know, sort of an ongoing discussion about uh, about these things, even even after what we'd categorize as the founding period, uh, but, but kind of overlapping with it in terms of the, the figures involved, um, which I think, you know, I see it as, as just part of the discussion that should add texture to it. I think someone like Deneen would say, it's the liberal sources of the founding and therefore putting them in direct conflict with supposedly liberal ones. But I think if you add the nuance that Ben was talking about there in terms of uh, reception of Locke and other, uh, I guess what we'd call enlightenment figures, although that's, that's a little uh, loose, but I, I think it's, it represents a, a much more robust sort of tradition that is not in total conflict with itself, but is really drawing out various aspects of it that when they're, sufficiently conditioned by the Protestant tradition, they make, make sense. And then I'd also, I, I'd also just love if, if people, you know, had a big takeaway from a lot of what Stephen talks about and, and Ben as well is to incorporate this Protestant element into your approach to the, to the founding or understanding of it or to, to look for it. Um, and also, but also the English aspect, right? I mean, I wrote about this recently in, in American Mind of, of you have to understand when rights are talked about, um, and other, you know, so-called liberties that these are conditioned by a particular people and tradition and experience that was well over a hundred years um, old at that point in a particular context. And I think that just, um, it's not to say they're to deny all universals, but it's to, again, um, sort of contextualize the, the tradition and realize you're part of a, a real one. So I think all those are it would be a win if people would start to talk about those things and think about it, I think. But um, uh, guys, any other so I don't drone on any other 
thoughts before we start opening up to questions. We have a few lined up here. I, I just say briefly that I think a year on from now time and the conversation continues apace and it's a good one to have. Um, had a chance to meet Douglas Wilson last night and was asking him what he thought about all the continued commotion over Christian nationalism. And he, he said he thought it was good and he thinks that he sees like the window shifting. He, he mentioned, you know, back a few years ago, uh, you know, if a major news media outlet was looking for sort of like the conservative Christian evangelical take on something, of course, they called David French or Russell Moore, or Tim Keller. But he says he's getting some of those calls now. And that's what we want. Right. We want Stephen Wolf getting those calls. We want Douglas Wilson getting those calls. We want, you know, other people getting those calls. And I think as we as we fight back against the leftists who are trying to use it as a smear and then define it positively and own it and and push it forward. It moves the conversation, and it's good for everybody involved. Thanks for that, William. Uh, Josh, anything to add there before we open this up a bit? No, absolutely not. I, I think, well, yeah, I'll, I'll say one thing. <laughs> I, I think that that um, you know a lot of the a lot of the fun stuff in the book, you know, in the epilogue, and then I think even the provocative framing of a potential political movement around a Christian prince, it's generated a lot of internet chatter. And I think that, you know, that's not just sort of silly talk by small accounts, but it, it captures people's imagination. It gets people talking. It, it makes people pay attention. And I think it's just caused a lot of, uh, I think a lot of very beneficial reconsideration old political assumptions. And so, you know, kudos, kudos on that. And uh, it's just it's a fun it's a fun time to be on Twitter and be engaged in these conversations and in, in other forums as well. Yeah, as I uh, argued, I thought actually thought the Christian Prince chapter was the most conventional chapter in terms of the tradition, but that was not received well by certain people either. Um, I think, and I think that's a good a good word, Josh. I mean, as as uh, someone that's a mutual friend of all of ours said to me, I think when the book was coming out of like, you just, um, he's, he's older than us, but he was like, you just don't understand how refreshing it is to see someone actually use the magisterial tradition in a generally accept, accessible, you know, somewhat academic in style and research, but accessible book and actually trying to put the magisterial tradition in conversation with today, you know, the, it, probably younger people just won't appreciate that as much, uh, because now they have it, you know? Um, so I think that is a should be considered an achievement, and um, I hope in a, in another year, you know, the conversation's gotten a little more um, rigorous from some of our interlocutors and uh, has moved the moved the ball down the field a bit more. Um, hey, okay. I, I just want to briefly yeah. mention. I'm sorry to all the questioners. I just want to say, no, um, uh, I, I just just briefly, we don't have to talk about it, but I, I think to, it's also worth mentioning uh, Isker and, and Torba. So the, they came out mm. the book before me. And they kind of spearheaded the conversation, and, and their their little book made kind of some waves too. So I think they they have done a lot to kind of drive some of the interest as well. So um, I think it's worth mentioning those guys, and that there's others as well. So I just wanted to bring those guys up and and make sure that they're they're mentioned. No, no, that's that's quite right. And uh, you know, I think we should should probably give um, some kudos to you know Canon for being willing to um, engage the topic and um, 
you know, they have a, a spicy tweet game themselves, which I always find uh, a lot of fun. But, um, you know, for being willing to publish publish this, and uh, so they should get credit as well. Doug Wilson, you know, is another one who's consistently engaged the the topics without without you know going all in. He's not just saying I agree with with everything uh, either Wolf I would imagine is saying, um, and he's even engaged with some of my stuff in this in the same way of. Um, but he's he's good faith and he clearly sees the value in it. Um, so those people deserve credit for in some ways sticking their necks out there. Um, I would say, especially when most of the response from Big Eva, mainstream, um, you know, important people, of course, is uh, is is to freak out and a, a little hysterical. Uh, I think I think Paul Miller, who was already mentioned by William, is just this lives rent free in his head. He can't stop writing about it. It's the same article over and over, but he's. He takes the time to try to rework it, which is nice. Um, okay, so any other uh, comments on that before we move to questions? All good? We got um, first up, it looks like Mason, I think, is first in line. Jesse, go ahead once you're connected, since Mason's still working on it. All right, can you guys hear me? Yep, you're good. All right, awesome. Um, I was scrolling through... Uh, <laughs> some of the listeners and it's great to see 85% of my Twitter feed here, but um, I just had two kind of, kind of short questions. Um, the first one, I'm obviously, I'm still a college student. So what is some ways that I, as a senior at Liberty university in college can kind of help uh, advance this conversation among my friends um, through um, whether it be through, maybe referring them to Stephen's book or other avenues. And second, what are some uh, outlooks when it comes to, I know uh, Dusty Dave, uh, Divers here and he's, you know, running for office in Oklahoma. So where are some outlooks that we have of like um, identifying and electing candidates who kind of fall more into this worldview and who are some maybe potential already elected candidates who we could bring on as allies in this fight? William, you want to take the uh, the last question first there? Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, Jesse, thanks for uh, chiming in, man. Um, well, Jesse, I mean, I think I know I got an idea. Some of the work you're already doing, right? Like in uh, with your with your fellow students at Liberty, you're doing a great job there. I think helping promote this, I think, you know, give people copies of Stephen's book, push people back towards like, so it's like if you're hanging out with, with fellow students and you guys want to read a theology book, like, well, maybe, maybe go back to somebody like Richard Baxter instead of just reading like the next, you know, I don't know, just popular level book. Um, in terms of building allies, I think it's just, you know, we continue to make the case, continue to make the arguments, continue to show people what's wrong. So I was uh, talking about this actually with Steven the other day. People really like to hear about what's wrong with things. Seriously, like Christians, if all you do is critique the bad thing, you'll never make any enemies. Um, it's as soon as you start proposing, maybe here's a better thing you could do instead. Well, then every Tom, Dick and Harry is going to have an opinion on whether or not that's the better thing to do instead. But one of the things you can do to help build allies is to sort of till the ground of helping them realize like, Oh, hey, well, don't we already have blasphemy laws? Look at these teens who just got charged for defacing the LGBTQ mural. You know, look at this, look at that. Help them realize the failures of the system as well. If you point out what's wrong, then that helps prepare them for the uh, some of the more and better solutions later. I'll leave it at that. 
Stephen, you got anything? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another thing is I would just say, read, uh, just read, um, older works. Uh, I, I think that not, not just because I tend to agree with the ideas more, but, but because the, their, their method and their argumentation is better. Um, e- even if you read someone you disagree with, uh, if, if it's older, they're probably going to teach you how to, how to, how to make an argument better than others. Um, uh, than most modern folks. And, uh, so I, I'd say with, with your friends at, at college, just form like a, a group where you're reading stuff or maybe, uh, find the friends who are reading older stuff and you can, you can talk about it. So in group chats or in person, um, I, I know that, that what was very beneficial for me was when I was on Facebook a lot, I follow, I was friends with people who would quote this and that, and they talk about this and that, and they'd argue about it in different groups. And, uh, and, um, so I think that's, that's really key because it, you, you'll, I mean, it's not just like, oh, these, these are based ideas that they're just, they're just better at making arguments. Um, to, today it's just, it's, it's just horrendous how bad, uh, people go about trying to prove something. Uh, and so I think that first of all, just, I, yeah, I, I just very confident that a, a better method will bring better ideas. <laughs> and, uh, so, um, I, I think that that's, and I, I think everyone, everyone I see on my screen right now can attest that they've become better thinkers um, because of the, they've engaged these older works. So that's what I recommend. I'll just better say real method quick. will produce better ideas. That's very epistemologically liberal of you, Stephen. But yes, go ahead, Ben. I'll just say real quick, Jesse, to follow up on what Stephen said there. In terms of modern scholarship, if people are scared of Christian nationalism or they don't want to dive into a 476-page book that has a lot of theory, um, I would recommend... Uh, looking at the works of Mark David Hall and Daniel Driesbach. Now, Hall will say, swear he's not a Christian nationalist. He wants to do the whole Christianity influence the founding. But what he does, at least, is he kind of does this normie conservative work of recovering a lot of the basic Christian um, material at the founding. And you can find all of that in his work. It's really good work of recovery and retrieval, but then we just need to kind of reframe it. And I think you can fit it all into a Christian nationalist framework. So if, if you have, if you want to recommend other sources to friends, look to those guys. A little bit of a white pill. Speaking of uh, Driesbeck, he's actually required reading for one of the government classes here at Liberty. So that'll be a very easy step to take with conversation. So thank you guys. That's excellent. Even, even just following his uh, Twitter feed. I mean, all he does all day is, is post, you know, uh, quotes from, old proclamations, speeches, these sorts of things. Um, that's a good good word from everybody, good advice. Um, we'll go to our next questioner, which is Bailey. Go ahead. Hey, can you all hear me okay? Bailey, are you on? Um, I am. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. All right, cool. Perfect. Um, so kind of piggybacking off of uh, Jesse's question back there, um, part of it at least, uh, I'm – Moving back to my hometown in the next couple of weeks, a um, place that I'm already very well established, and uh, some family members, I can't get too deep into it, but some family members and some other local church people are working on um, kind of something Jesse mentioned about trying to bring in um, good candidates that would, would kind of agree with this kind of message, um, but I know that in the area that I grew up, there is a lot of folks who will definitely be incredibly opposed to it, whether they are in church or not. I was wondering if y'all have any 
just brief recommendations on how to combat that kind of stuff on the small scale community level. Um, and uh, yeah, that's basically it. I think there's a ton of things you can do, and I think others probably would be better at answering this than me. But I think one, one, um, I guess, like technique I've used is to say, well, you know, you, you venerate these these set of guys in the in the tradition, and I guess this works probably with a certain, uh, you know, type of, of of Christian. But you know, the, these people you venerate had these ideas, and you you oppose them vehemently. But why why don't you oppose those people? you know, that you venerate. So I think that that's one way to say, Hey, look, Calvin said this, these other guys said this, they all said that. So that's one thing to say, Hey, let's, why are you so opposed to what so many people once affirmed? Um, but anyway, I'm sure other people have better ideas, but that's mine. Yeah. Bailey, I would just say, you know, as you make friends and build relationships, join a gym, you know, invite people to church, then you can, you know, again, it's like give them, give them books that help lead into things, right? Like maybe you read Christopher Caldwell's age of entitlement with somebody, maybe you read, you know, did America have a Christian founding by Mark David Hall, you know, maybe you, you know, work your way up to the case for Christian nationalism, just have a conversation about it, lead a book club. But I think really in terms of like how you advance these ideas, particularly um, what Stephen gets into in his final bit there and just sort of the recovery of American localism and a conservative way of life, you, you do it just in, in your community, centered around a good church, making good relationships. I mean, it's not, you know, we want to live the lives that we want to see projected across the country writ large. And that begins by each one of us in our communities. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Sorry, Bailey, I lost connection there. So I didn't hear your whole question, but I think I'm, I'm getting the gist of it. And one thing I'd say with piggybacking off what Stephen said is as you engage the older sources, uh, you'll notice they begin in many ways that uh, that Stephen did, which is uh, with fundamentals and with basics. And I th- I've found it somewhat useful or successful to ask people, you know, if you begin with these certain priors that are unassailable, in my opinion, and then you drive them to certain conclusions, you know, on what is the license you, you gain that allows you to deny the conclusion? So if you begin with something as basic as, you know, man is body and soul, which is where you see a lot of the political texts beginning, there's implications for that, theological ones. Um, and so I think beginning with those things that are almost, you know, pre-political in our minds is is a helpful way to start um, before you jump right into, you know, should we have an establishment today? Um, and try to lead people, you know, gradually um, in that way. And so that, that's how um, I work through the material myself. Um, Presbytery Anon is, is next on the speaker list. So go ahead. Hi, guys. Uh, I haven't been listening in for too long, so hopefully I'm not uh, reiterating anything anybody's already said. But um, kind of what I've been thinking on lately is, you know, as we're working towards a positive political vision, what is the, I suppose in the interim, what is the value of occupying not only the elected governmental positions, but, um, you know, there's a lot of unelected, low-level bureaucracy positions like in your DOTs, uh, your, your department of natural resources, things like that. What's, what is the value of Christians working to occupy those positions, uh, to accumulate political power through those kinds of avenues? Any of the panel want to respond to this? Uh, we have some. 
uh, current and previous government workers here. So, oh, look, I don't, I'm not trying to monopolize anything, so I'll try to keep this brief. But I think, look, I mean, I think the value is is very high. The 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 question is, what is your overall posture and disposition as you come into it? Right, I do not want. You know, uh, 200 more Russell Moore and David French type Christians, you know, holding positions of power in our federal government, state or local governments. We have enough of that already. So, you know, what we need are more and more Christians who have a new um, and more robust, more theologically grounded, more grounded in the tradition view of the exercise of power unto good ends under the authority of God for the common good of man to be to be getting into the fight. But yes, I mean, get you know run for local office like Dusty's doing, you know, build, build a business, right? Like people, people tend to silo politics off, but like if you build a healthy, thriving local business, you're a political actor in your community unto good ends. So yeah, go for it. Yeah. Yeah. And then kind of off of that, um, one of the things I've said, I think, probably i actually i think i think i just said this to william yesterday (laughs) um and and that's it that like we each need to find like what our strength is and not try to be the same sort of person or actor um in kind of this movement or just the idea of christian politics generally i mean we should each find what our strength is uh and and pursue that as kind of a you know kind of a collective endeavor so not each of us trying to be the same thing. So not, not everyone has to read, you know, try to read through the, the prose of, of a Samuel Rutherford or try to understand what Thomas Aquinas is saying. But like William said, you can start a business, you can run for, lo- for local office, you know, you can do all sorts of things. So j- just find that place that you're good at and, and pursue that with a, a view to this, this, uh, this vision. Um, and uh, yeah. Hey, this is uh, Lucas Curcio. I, um, I just want to say, you know, um, hi to Stephen and, and hi to William Wolf. Um, I have a question that kind of brewing in my mind. I just want to hear your thoughts on it. So I'm trying to test the theory to see if uh, the Christian Dumb 1.0 that like Doug Wilson talked about was that due to like a denominational slash institutional hierarchy that where today we would have to as churches work towards denominations again so we can establish that institution and therefore that would spill over into the christian nationalism um i guess like building up in that sense where we can start working towards these goals as as you spoke about in your book and then also too i just want to make a mention to everybody if if anyone's interested i recently read a sermon by john wesley it's called the reformation of manners and that has a lot of interesting stuff that's related to this topic if anyone just wants to go Check that out. I, I was very interested to hear what John Wesley had to say regarding these ideas and just, you know, amongst the rhetoric that we hear of people just complaining like Owen Strawn against, you know, the false accusations about what this whole idea of Christian nationalism is. But that uh, that's all I have to say. Anyone want to take that? I, I guess um, I gather your question, uh, Method Ministries, is, is a, are, are you saying is a stronger sort of ecclesial hierarchy um and and inside denominations necessary for um the as is it necessary to establish kind of what steven's talking about is is that your question i'm not sure i quite gather oh yeah going from doug wilson a bit there yeah yeah a little bit of you know from doug wilson's work um 
because you know I've been thinking about this whole current situation that we're in, and I see a lot of non-denominationalism going on, and a lot of the Baptists who are advocating for it, you know, they're in that bracket of non-denominationalism. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to think about the first Christendom 1.0, as Doug Wilson talked about, was that due or correlated to a denominational where there was this institutional power, because along with institutions, you have a hierarchy. So yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I, I got it. So I'll, I'll give my quick answer, and okay. then um, Stephen may have a, a bit of a different uh, take on it. Um well, it's 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 twofold, I guess, and maybe they are even competing. One is, you know, what we've talked about already a bit here, and and I've written about elsewhere, is that you know, in the American context, it was a sort of pan-Protestantism with state establishments, um, and that just coincides with the the Federalist structure we had and the the colonial background. That's how they organically arose. Um, and in my opinion, you do need, I would say, you do need establishment. For what what I would like worked out in a perfect world, and in principle, uh, you do need establishments at this sort of state or local level um, because there has to be um, the, the state and its laws have to be informed by a certain theological morality, and you do need a body or an organ, you know, a senate or something to uh, pronounce on certain things um, as necessary. So I do see that the the two go a bit hand in hand, and they they are required. But at the same time, for a lot of the general principles of politics, um, Christian politics, um, I've actually said too that your your eschatological position and your ecclesial position um, are not as relevant as people want to make them. I think they they provide more of a mood than um, an actual um, requirement, um, and that's just kind of you know dealing with the American context as it stands. But I'll let Stephen respond to. Yeah, and I think I think it's a very good question. I I don't know if I have a. I, I guess I'd be kind of thinking out loud here. Um, I think about my initial reaction to the framing of like a Christendom 1.0 and 2.0 is not to. I, I think it would be the importance would be. I guess this is in line with what time is saying is trying to see instead of seeing 1.0 as uh, as some sort of um, strictly negative endeavor uh or, or kind of a, a negative um like something that we kind of over like something we need to overcome i think it's something that whatever 2.0 would be it has to still take i mean i don't know what, what i guess it means what, what do we mean by christendom 2.0 or 1.0 but i i think at least within the protestant context i'll just leave it there we have to we have to uh emphasize continuity so whatever 2.0 is we don't want to see it as like repudiation of the everything in the past, but as a sort of principled development from the past. Uh, so that's the only thing I would say is, and is that we need to see it as we're kind of, uh, yeah, we're working out from those principles, what works uh, now and kind of see the vision for the future. Um, so it, does that involve like strictly ecclesi- ecclesial hierarchies and establishment? I think, yeah, I think time might, might be right with that i'm not entirely sure i guess i have a sort of like rosy picture of 19th century america which is probably you know a little romantic um where there was a sense of we are a christian people and while there was kind of a decentralized um kind of church state relationship and so i i I, so i think that because that was achieved i think i want to hope that that's still possible um but uh yeah, I mean, I, it's a good question. I'd have to think about it more. Maybe other people have a better answer than I do. I, I would, 
I would say that I, I want to chime in on the question from a different angle, but as a Baptist, I do think that um, the lack of an ecclesial hierarchy probably takes some of the strictest establishment options off the table, even if not as a matter of principle, it's a matter of just the workability, right? So the strictest, if the strictest establishment um, permutation is an arrangement where the government, perhaps the government says, you know, no one can preach without a license or what have you. In, in a circumstance like that, the government sort of needs like this um, ecclesial um, entity to deal with, to, to work through the issue of issuance of those licenses, right? And to, to make those determinations, um, much of what we call establishment, I think, uh, very broadly in the 20th century and 21st century could be um, established through uh, lower churches or non-denominational churches. Um, but it, I, I think there's functional difficulty uh, working on the stricter permutations of establishment without having some sort of ecclesial structure. Yeah, I'll just, I agree with that, Josh. And I'll just say this, that the reason that America worked so well for so long as a Protestant nation was because of the mainline churches. And the mainline churches did have some ecclesial hierarchy. They did have an aristocratic bent and an understanding that we must lead the nation, a kind of noblesse oblige that said, we have a responsibility for this country and these people. And the question arises whether or not evangelicalism, there's something in evangelicalism in its DNA that prevents that. It's more of a passive following than it is an aristocratic leading. And so the question is, can we develop a new mainline? Because the mainlines are dying, if not already dead. That's that's a huge issue. It's a big question. We should look into what made the mainlines mainline. How did they succeed so well? How do we resurrect that uh, within you know evangelicalism or convert? Yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, this is something to plug American Reformer again, you know, that Aaron Wren talks about quite a bit, which is a crisis of self-confidence and leadership amongst Protestants generally, and that does seem to coincide with the demise of the mainline. Um, so the extent to which there there's a causality, causal relationship there, um, or just a coincidence is an interesting one, but um, it clearly under the, the current evangelical attitude towards politics, it would preclude, you know, any advancement um, in, in this regard, even before we get to the question of, of establishments or, um, you know, church hierarchies. Um, but I want to get uh, Ben Sperry, who's been waiting for a bit. So, Ben, go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, I'm really honored to have this opportunity uh, to uh, address uh, Mr. Wolf's fantastic book uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I really enjoyed the retrieval project as one that not only descends from Puritans, but as a member of the OPC Church and really admires the, the Westminster Confession. Um, but I also uh, have a slight pushback, though I do agree with him on Christian culture being great and his comments about uh, 19th century liberalism and how it could be consistent uh, with his point of view was really enlightening. Um, my soft pushback, um, and is meant to be as such, is I do think the American revisions to the Westminster Confession of Faith um, are problematic for some of uh, his thesis. Um, in particular, they delete in the chapter 20, the power of the civil magistrate um, and Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. They completely rewrite the civil 
Magistrate Chapter 23. And uh, these are things that are adopted. Uh, oh, and they also change it so that uh, the, the, the civil magistrate can't call synods. Um, and all these things together um, were adopted very early by the, the synods in New York and Philadelphia, 1788. Um, so it seems to me, at least in the American context, um, that it's not really a post-war consensus in some ways. Um, it's, it's very early. Um, you could argue maybe soft establishmentism is possible um, as a reading consistent with this, but I think that's relatively strained to do so. Um, religious liberty seems to have been embraced by uh, Reformation Presbyterians um, very early. Um, and, and I think this continues uh, not only in the 19th century, as, as Mr. Wolf uh, was enlighteningly talking about today, uh, but, you know, some of the great early, early 20th century heroes of the Reformation the, uh, faith, like uh, Nation in particular, um, uh, continue this tradition um, of very strong religious liberty uh, protection, um, consistent with, as I see it, American revision of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I was just wondering if you had any more thoughts on that, because um, uh, I find myself, as I hear you tonight, uh, more and more in agreement with a lot of what you say, um, you know, while still believing uh, maybe a little bit more strongly in the powers of markets to uh, integrate people from very different backgrounds. But nonetheless, that's a different conversation. Um, but I do admire what, you, what you've done with this work. And I just uh, wanted to offer that soft pushback, give you an opportunity to respond. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I, I do think, well, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I see those revisions as Presbyterians trying to see themselves as uh, integrating themselves um, into kind of the, the American context. So, yeah, the the original Westminster Confession can easily be in, uh, understood as contradicting kind of the um, the political culture and ideas of the founding era. I don't think necessarily, by the way, but I, but I, I do think that uh, they, they were motivated by that. Um, but at the same time, I, I, and I don't have the text in front of me, but as I've read it in the, in the past, it, it does kind of preclude a, uh, an active civil government with regard to denominations and a, uh, like a, a strict establishment and, and kind of an intolerance. But it, doesn't, it does not preclude a... A, a, uh, a civil society that sees itself as Christian and wants to preserve itself uh, as such. So the, it's, it's, one thing, it's one thing to say that the civil government should not involve itself directly in matters concerning uh, doctrine and choosing one denomination or the other or suppressing this or that denomination that organizes and assembles peaceably. Um, but it's, I don't think it, the text can, can be used to say, well, uh, if th that uh, well, but that that, that 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 we can't actually protect a Protestant or you know or just a, a broad Christian uh, civil society. Um, so I I think you can you can restrain civil power with regard to denominations and religious positions and practice, um, but at the same time say the conditions for all this liberty is going to be a, a Protestant or Christian people. Does that, I agree does that with that. Uh, I guess the one thing I would say is the language does have, though, um, that there, you know, the government has no duty uh, upon pretense of religion or infidelity to offer violence, abuse, or injury to any person whatsoever. It's just about really maintaining order 
um, which seems to me to be pretty consistent with how First Amendment law and religious liberty and the established laws developed over time um, as a lawyer by training. Um, not all to the bad of Christianity, I would, I would note. Um, I think some of what the Supreme Court has done on religious liberty has actually been overwhelmingly positive for the ability of, of us to do faith and practice in the modern age, even though there are obviously issues as well. Um, so that, that's my friendly pushback, um, though I agree with you on civil society and Christian culture um, being a great counterbalance and really thing that we should want. So thank you. Well, another Thanks. thing, too, is Thanks. you can have uh, like, you know, institution, like you could still have a sort of institutional culture that says we're going to we're going to you know countenance these ideas and not support the other ones. And so if. Um, yeah, so like restraining civil power does not necessarily mean that that uh, the the people themselves and also institutional leaders cannot uh, advocate for a more, I guess, exclusive posture. Uh, and I got to chime in here. I got to chime in here real quick because it's one of my my pet topics, which is one. And I think I think Ben Sperry was was kind of alluding to this at the end. There is is that there. Um, the changes to the confession do not preclude um, the magistrate's consideration of civil order, of course. And if you look at the early blasphemy laws cases, the justification for this enforcement of, bl- of state blasphemy laws is always um, predicated on a civil order basis, right? So the point is, when you have a generally Christian people, it is destabilizing and bad for people to over- openly revile the predominant religion. This is simply destabilizing. You even have a strange case case in Delaware, and I think 1835, that is talking about, you know, if if tomorrow everyone decided to be Muslim, we would have the same predicament. That would be terrible, but that's just the way the, the, the law works. Um, so they're, they're recognizing the civil basis for the enforcement of certain religious aspects. The other thing I just I would just throw out there is my sort of conspiracy theory of that Stephen is somewhat touched on as to why the changes in the Westminster Confession happen when they do. Um, I, of course, reject them, but there is a sense in which at the period in 88, Presbyterians are very suspect politically. Um, They don't really control a particular state. And so their their provisions in the Westminster Confession um, are often taken to have a national um, object. And you see that you see this in sort of John Adams writing about troubles in his election because he's accused of aligning with the Presbyterian cabal to take over the country and make it Presbyterian. Um, and so there, there's some interesting data there as to why I'm not saying they're totally disingenuous. I'm just saying there's strange things going on politically for Presbyterians at the time um, because they are generally suspected of of wanting to take over the country and they don't have any particular state power in a particular state at the time. Um, but let's go to. Michael Keck, you're next in line, brother. Hey, thank you, gentlemen. I, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to to listen in and soak up this wisdom, and also uh, hopefully offer a uh, a nugget of insight um, regarding the question that I believe it was Bailey uh, posed earlier about undertaking some projects within a church or a local community there. And wanted to offer some um, anecdotes from personal experience with my my younger brother being a, a two-term mayor uh, here in our city. Um, we serve about 100,000 uh, residents. He manages a, a budget north of $100 million for the city. 
And one of the things that, that he has actively worked on and I've worked on with him is uh, a principle that, that transcends um, certain elected offices and localities uh, that, that you can implement wherever you are. At least I think this is the case that when, when you cast a positive vision for a community, for a church, uh, a, a state, or even a nation, but, but focusing in more, more narrowly on a church or a community uh, where the power to affect change uh, can be greater is vigorously undertaking the, the work to accomplish a, a positive vision is extremely compelling. And you, you had mentioned, I think, Bailey, that certain people within the church that would be detractors or within the community that would be detractors to what you're trying to do. That's inevitable. It's always going to happen anywhere you, you try to enact change. And what, what we have seen that has served us well uh, from a prudential standpoint is being very selective about who you engage and when, where, and how. You know, we're in Kentucky, so, you know, we, we colloquially will say, you don't want to throw gas on the fire. Uh, if it's a uh, small contingent, then lending, if you have the, the microphone or the bully pulpit, lending your voice to their concerns can uh, cause them to be seen as outsized by onlookers. So I, I would uh, exhort you and anyone else that, that is in, in local office or thinking about running for local office uh, to, to, or working within a church or community to cast the vision, uh, communicate it compellingly, as compellingly as you know how, and then set about your work and stay focused on it. Uh, and only engage the, the naysayers and detractors uh, on a very selective basis when, when it's absolutely necessary. And people will be drawn to success. Um, that they, they almost always are. And I think you'll be able to accomplish much of what you set out by going about it in that fashion. Thanks, Michael, for that, uh, that advice um, drawn from experience. I did want to, Clifford Humphrey was with us earlier. He had to go, but he did want to throw out a comment. Uh, it's kind of a question, so maybe, Stephen, you can comment on it as well. Um, and he, he was talking about, um, you know, one way he's had success in engaging these topics is to ask people, you know, what's, um, what, if any, alternative to liberalism is there? And so part of the reason that, you know, a Christian nationalist proposal, such as the one Stevens given, um, takes people aback or sort of throws them for a loop is that they're, they're operating from, you know, the position that there is no alternative to liberalism. This is some, we've kind of addressed this earlier, um, but to ask them, you know, in sort of a thought exercised way, if there was an alternative, what would it look like? And, you know, can uh, what what precludes you from considering that? Is everything so hunky-dory now? And this, again, gets back to something we were talking about of, um, you know, look around. Is, is everything great? Do you, do you think we've reached a sort of political nirvana? Um, if you do think that, you know, how do you explain so many of the, the societal ills that we're currently, um, you know, enduring? So um, I think that's a, a good 
point as to strategy or, or sort of a political or polemical rather engagement. Um, Stephen, any comments on that? And then we'll move to our last question, uh, which is Ryan McCubbin. Yeah, I think the move most people make is they, they it's what I basically think is n- nostalgia for the neutral world. I know I always bring up Aaron Rins thing. I don't, I don't want to overuse it, but I, I think it's a great framework. Um, I think there's a certain nostalgia for a period of time that might be, might be a few decades where the, where Christianity Christians did seem to have a, a place or a seat at the table or whatever. And I, I, I think to, uh, first of all, showing that that is something that was temporary and, and, and always was going to be temporary because this idea of neutrality is, is ridiculous and pretty much re- rejected for, all, all of history and and we we just all kind of were socialized into a political culture uh that was very unique um but also extremely temporary and so going back to that is just nostalgia uh so that's the negative but the positive would be you know within our own history we've had like i said earlier a type of liberalism if you want to call it that where it, w- it was still a confident christian uh, a confident um, Protestantism and a insistence that that's who we are. That's, that's what America to be American is to be a sort of um, is to be in a way um, brought into or part of a, a, a people group that was confident in itself and uh, to, to, to stand to see the institutions reflect that. Uh, so I think it really just doing our history and, and and destroying some of the myths that we were socialized into over the last decades, and mostly by conservatives, uh, these these myths of like neutrality and secularism. So I think that's that's what I would say to Clifford. Again, I I, I think other people can respond to this uh, better than I can, um, but uh, that that's what I would tell them. Uh, just just to, we don't have to jump out of our own tradition to see the possibilities of of the future here. We can we can work from our from our own um, our own tradition. Yeah, that's good. Good, Stephen. Um, we'll skip other comments from the panel for now because we're coming up on an hour and a half. We'll take Ryan McCubbin's questions and then parting thoughts from the panel, and we'll call it a night here. So, Ryan, go ahead. Yeah, um, didn't know that y'all. I have some comments. Are comments allowed? We will allow comments. <laughs> All right. Uh, I just wanted to, uh, you know it's a privilege to, to be engaged in, in this fight with all y'all. And I'm really proud of the work that all y'all are doing. Um, we spent a lot of time on defense the last few months. And I don't know, it's because there's been an inordinate amount of uh, attacks coming from uh, a lot of, a lot of the various quarters of, of evangelicals. Uh, you know, we have a message and uh, we need to pres- to give our brothers opportunities to communicate that message and we need to blow past this Twitter firewall of, of G3 and master seminary and, and all of this, uh, this noise out there and, and get it to the people. Um, you know, a lot of people don't read books, but people do go to church. And so if, if you, if you're a pastor, if, if you're on an elder board on, or you're a deacon, you have the ability to get one of these guys in and uh, give them a microphone, let them talk about politics, about culture about Christian nationalism, I would encourage everybody listening to do that, to take, take the initiative, start, start pushing 
and, and give one of these men a platform. Let, let, let's get past the, the noise and playing defense and let's go on offense. We have a wonderful opportunity to delegitimize clown world socially, culturally, politically, and theologically. And ours, our message is what they need. So, so give these men a platform, get, get the message out, and uh, let's win. Yeah, if I, I was going to say that. Was, uh, so thanks, Ryan. Also, the, the previous, um, uh, was that Michael, I think. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, we're being distracted by, by people. And, uh, I, I mean, we, we do want to engage these people, but I, yeah, I think not getting distracted into like the negative world or defensive posture and, and think more of how can we continue to push what, you know, Christian nationalism is and, and ta- and, uh, have a internal, you know, conversation among ourselves and also get out that the more positive aspect of it instead of kind of it feels like sometimes I'm doing, I'm, I'm playing like whack-a-mole on, on Twitter. It's like, th- this guy says this thing and it's like, that's dumb. And so I have to, you know, and we, we all do that, which there's a place for that, but uh, doing, doing the whack-a-mole can be, kind of be distracting, especially when they're, they're, they're not the sort of people you can correct or uh, yeah. So I think that's a very good, good sound advice. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, great, great parting uh, exhortation there. William, any parting thoughts uh, before we hop off here? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I just, you know, I just want to sort of briefly bring everything back to like why this matters and why do we do it, and we do it because I, I really fundamentally believe that you know Christian nationalism and just government is an extension of the gospel message, right? Like we, they go hand in hand together. We want to, you know. We want to baptize people who have professed, well, we want to baptize people, uh, depending on where you land on that issue, um, who have accepted the spiritual faith and salvation of the gospel of grace offered through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to disciple them and teach them how to live in God's good world, to take dominion, to press forward, to bring the message of the gospel to others. And, you know, a Christian uh, political theology that has nothing to say about the what our government should look like, about how our lives should be ordered, about how we should love our neighbors, is an anemic Christian political theology uh, that Josh Dodds, I think, rightly was talking about recently. This sort of like the end of history, Francis Fukuyama, you know, liberalism is sort of the best thing since sliced bread, you know, end of history, and that's been totally blown up here in the start of the 21st century. And so I just, I just hope that everybody in this conversation does, you know, work to kind of remember why we're doing it. And we're doing it to honor Christ in the public square as Lord of all. Sorry. Thanks, William. Uh, Maximum leader, Joshua Abitoy, any parting thoughts? Thank you, Stephen, for joining us. Thanks to the audience for all of your questions. Um, This has been a fantastic discussion. I I want to just echo um, Michael Keck's comments. Uh, from a couple moments ago and, and encourage winning is infectious. It's contagious. Um, you know, we, we're generally speaking in a time in our society where, um, you know, life is very strange. People are, um, you know, even if you look at mental health and substance and all of this stuff, um, 
in our country and I think a lot of it is because in politics and society healthier. And so you know, I think I think all of that modern condition why is Josh, we're having a little trouble here, and you hear, brother, at least in my end. Uh... Oh, got it, got it. Um, okay, you're back. I'm, now. I'm, you seem I'm good now. Of connection. Okay, I, I was just going to to say it, it. Those of us who have political vocations during this very uncertain political time, I think, have a unique opportunity to restore justice in the public square and really love our neighbors by casting positive vision for a moral order uh, when there's absolute chaos out there otherwise. Excellent. Uh, ben Crenshaw, anything to, to add before we hop off here? I and mean, then we'll give Stephen the last word. Sure. The only thing I would add is, in terms of going on the offensive is to take the last chapter, chapter 10 of Stephen's book, and expand it. Um, you know, uh, one of the most important things in political action is to connect uh you know, love of one's own uh, to to politics. So you can theorize all day, but we're Americans and we're Protestant, and the uh, Protestant and Christian elements of America at her founding and prior are waiting to be discovered and to be uh, shared with the world. And you just saw, say, uh, you know, Jenna Ellis this week have a complete meltdown on Twitter because she just couldn't handle uh, the, the idea of, an explicit Christian political order in America. That's how it was. So I think the offensive is there um, if we're willing to kind of dig into it. Thanks, Ben. Excellent, excellent comment there. Stephen, uh, you want to take us out? Um, any parting thoughts coming up on the one-year anniversary of the book? Yeah, I just first, I'm just very grateful for everyone uh, the, that who, who supported me in all this. Uh, I think about... Um, Make sure you pray for the the people who have been casualties in all this, um, and do what you can to help them and support them. Um, so, think and pray and help them. Um, and a lot of people have kind of stuck their necks out, and I, I appreciate uh, what uh, the um, the people taking risks for this. Uh, so, very grateful. Um, yeah, and I, I I would just say like like think what this is all for. Uh, I think, yes, it'll be a more just um, political order. Um, I, I think it, it, but we have to keep the keep in mind that like in the end, like the ultimate goal is is uh, is eternal life. So we talk a lot about politics is directly about temporal life. Right. So that, that's true. Uh, we're ordering ourselves, arranging ourselves. But if we, if we don't think about how that temporal relates to the eternal, then we're just going to miss entirely what we're, what we're about, what we're doing. So, uh, just, just keep in mind that we're, um, we're, we, we want to arrange this world the best we can, uh, with the powers ordained of God for us so that we can advance, um, the, the kingdom of God. So I'll just keep, keep your, keep your eye on that, you know, fix your eyes uh, on heaven. And when we do that, I think we can properly order, uh, earthly life, um, to that end. Excellent uh, parting thoughts, Stephen. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this spaces, uh, we're trying to do these 
weekly again on various topics with um, a lot of our authors. So uh, keep a lookout for American Reformer Spaces and uh, keep uh, visiting the website for daily content at AmericanReformer.org. Um, thanks again to our panel, William, Josh, Stephen, and Ben, um, and everyone asking questions. Uh, hope everyone has a good night. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AM Reformer.